0: It's wonderful to be with you today. It's wonderful just to even begin our time together with all sorts of life transformation. And and I do want to simply declare that the the reality is this life transformation that we've been celebrating, it's because of Jesus. It's It's only because of Jesus that we are able to celebrate this kind of radical life change, this incredible new life that we're talking about. And if you want to grab your notes out of your handout, you'll see that, that we are in a series called Only Jesus... And it's, it's taking us all the way to Easter, and, and it's so important for us in this post-Christian, post-modern world that we live in, that we take a look at who is it that Jesus said that he was? What was his understanding of his own role, his own purpose? And then we also see what it is that he taught about himself, how did he live, what is it that the Bible says about Jesus, what's the, the position that the Bible says is, is, is his to fill, And as we do this, what you will see is that only Jesus could fill this spot. This, this is, he's not one of many religious leaders, he's not one of many moral teachers, he's, he, he's not somebody with, you know, like led this peaceful revolution. All those things are true, but he's more than all of that. The, the role that Jesus fills is a role that only Jesus can fill. And in fact, today we're going to be talking about the role that he fills is that of Messiah. Now specifically speaking, the the idea of Messiah was written about in the scriptures even hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus in the form of prophecies. So these were prophecies, these were predictions that Messiah, when he showed up on the scene, this is the role that he would fill. This is how you will know that this one is the anointed one of God. But before we even get into that, I I just hope you know that that making predictions about future events, it can be rather tricky. In fact, I found this quote from a physicist named Niels Bohr. He says, prediction is a very difficult art, especially when it involves the future. So you recognize that. If you've ever tried to forecast, and and we found this book called The World's Worst Predictions. Here's a couple of history's all-time goofs. King George II in 1773 said the American colonists have little stomach for revolution. Well, he was wrong, right? That was a goof. How about in 1912, an official of the White Star Line, speaking of the firm's newly built flagship, the Titanic, declared that it was unsinkable. Right? So it's a goof. Or how about this? In 1939... The New York Times said that the problem of television is that people had to glue their attention to the screen and Americans wouldn't have time for it. <laughs> Bit of a goof, right? Now these are, these are kind of historical predictions. Here's one that, that we found relatively recently uh, just from, from one of our neighbors here. Uh, Steve Ballmer says there's no chance the iPhone is going to get any significant market share former Microsoft employee (laughs) you see making predictions is difficult to do having this kind of prophetic outlook like uh, what's going to happen that's that can be tricky but you know the prophecy actually carries weight in your own heart in, in, in the way that you reckon things this is true for me Maybe when you were reading through the Chronicles of Narnia to your kids and and you read the the prophecies about Aslan's return and you got a little chill down your spine. Why? It's because prophecy carries weight. Or if you're a sci-fi fan, you read the Dune series or you watched The Matrix and and, and you see this idea of prophecy being fulfilled. It has weight. It, it, It carries something with it. Not only that, but I would argue that even a person who makes a prophecy about themselves and then fulfills it, that even carries weight. Right? You think about uh, the the old uh, idea of Babe Ruth stepping up to the plate and pointing for the center field fence. And then two pitches later, he hits it, and it goes right over the center field fence. And people just lose their minds, like, oh, he's the king of the stick. Or Actually, I don't think they said that, but they, they should have said that. Um, I would have said that, and they missed an the opportunity. But the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that prophecy fulfilled, it carries something. There's, there's a weight to it. There's a power to it. There's a momentum to it. And and let's take a look at what Jesus says that the Bible says about him. So this is Jesus in Luke 24, verse 44. He says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he, referring to Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I'd love for you to circle the phrase, understand the scriptures. Understand the scriptures, because really this is the, the idea. The question comes up, how did people in Israel know that the Messiah was coming? How did they know about the anointed one of God? How, how, how did they know what to look for when the Messiah would arrive on the scene? And the answer is from the Old Testament prophecy. In fact, you you might recall that the disciples of John the baptizer actually came to Jesus and they asked him the question, are you the one we're waiting for? You see, the entire nation of Israel was waiting for Messiah. They were eagerly anticipating the arrival of God's anointed, the Savior. They were looking for the Messiah. And I found some quotes from some really well-respected theologians. Graham Goldsworthy says, The most compelling reason for Christians to read and study the Old Testament lies in the New Testament. The New Testament witnesses to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the one in whom and through whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment. Leslie Newbigin says this, The theme of promise and fulfillment runs like a thread through the whole Bible. And Walter Kaiser says, "...a straightforward understanding and application of the text leads one straight to the Messiah and to Jesus of Nazareth, who has fulfilled everything these texts said about His first coming." And you know, Jesus' own words on this point are even more important. Jesus Himself repeatedly said that He was the thread that wove together the entire Old Testament. So practically speaking, this means that Scripture is not rightly taught or understood unless we understand that its primary purpose is to reveal the person of Jesus. You might remember that when Jesus was on the scene, he really got into it with the experts of the religious law. With the ones who were the absolute, they were they were the ones who knew the Old Testament Bible backwards and forwards. In fact, the Pharisees, uh, many of them, had the entire canon of the Old Testament memorized. And Jesus stood in front of them and he said, "You don't know the Bible." And they're like, what do you mean we don't know the Bible? I know every single word in the Bible. You, you know, call out a verse. I can, I can quote it for you. He says, no, you don't know the Bible because the Bible, the Scripture, is about me. It's about God's heart revealed in a person, Messiah, and he's standing in front of you. And you don't even see him. you search the Scriptures for your entire life to find God. And God's here, and you're missing him. You see, it's all about Jesus. Only Jesus fulfills this role. And so if you flip over your outline real quickly, you'll notice on the back, I've placed 25 prophecies from the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. And and sometime on your own, I encourage you to look these up. And what you'll find as you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you'll find is that as the Bible uh, claims, Scripture does not return void, that God's Word will actually reveal its own authority to you as you recognize that these are prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. And the exercise I want to do really quickly with you is I want to talk for a, a few moments about some of the prophecies on the back that simply could not be manipulated by a mere mortal. You know, it's possible if you have a little bit of a skeptical mind, maybe like I have a little bit of a skeptical mind, you might argue, well, well, Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies and in fact, he did. Jesus was well acquainted with the entire Old Testament. That's maybe because he wrote it, but, the, you know, inspiration. But the idea is he knew it. He had studied it. He, he knew the Old Testament scripture. And so it might be possible, you would argue, that because he knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah, that he was able to manipulate the circumstances of his own life in order to present himself as the Messiah when, in fact, he, he wasn't. So uh, just let me say, I, I get that argument. Like, for example, and this is not in the Bible, but for example, if somewhere in the Bible it said that you would know the Messiah because he would be dressed in blue, and then Jesus knew that prophecy, and so his entire wardrobe was robes of blue. And he made his disciples wear blue capes, and he painted blue flames on the side of his camel. And he shows up, and he says, here I am, blue boy, the Messiah. You know, you, you would not give a lot of credence to that, because it's pretty easy to manipulate your circumstances to fulfill that prophecy. Does that make sense? It's not in the Bible, but that's an example. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a look at some of the scripture that prophetically speaks to the Messiah that would be impossible to manipulate your life circumstances around. So so these are prophecies that it would be absolutely impossible. Even though Jesus knew them, it would be impossible for him to manipulate his life in order to fulfill them. So take a look at prophecy number two, for example. Prophecy number two talks about the lineage and heritage of the Messiah, the anointed one. And then in the New Testament, it reveals the lineage of Jesus, and it shows that he, in fact, is the answer to this prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, just let me tell you, it is impossible for you to manipulate your ancestry. It just is. It's it's impossible for you. Now, some of you wish you could manipulate it, right? There are are relatives you wish you could just kind of cut out of the family tree, but you can't do that. Because you're not in charge of that. That just is what it is. So that's one example of of a prophecy that you cannot manipulate. Look at number four. You cannot manipulate where you are born. You just can't do that. In fact, do you know why I was born in Kansas? Because I wanted to be near my mom. You see? (laughs) You have no choice. You, you, you're just born where your mom's hanging out at that time. Like, that's, that's, that's what happens. And, and you, you don't have a say over that. You can't choose that. You can't opt in or opt out. And, and by the way, Bethlehem, it was this tiny little town. It's, it was just this little hamlet in the kingdom. And, and so you just recognize you, you cannot manipulate where you were born. Look at number six. Number 6 talks about where the family of Jesus would be they would be moved to they moved to Egypt. And I just I want you to know that when you're 2 years old you cannot tell your parents where you need to be. Like you when you're 2 you just live where you live. You don't you can't manipulate your parents and it's not you're just figuring out walking and talking at that point. You can't say mom dad let's not move to Egypt. Uh, it's really a dry climate. I don't like the smell of hookah. Let's stay here, you know. It, it, it does not matter what you say. And in fact, even if you could say that, you're two. What, what, are, what are you going to do? You know, so your, your parents are going to do what they do. That's another example of something you cannot manipulate. Look at prophecies 11 and 12. They talk about how Jesus or how the Messiah would be betrayed and for how much money the Messiah would be betrayed. You can't manipulate that. Even in the Godfather, that kind of betrayal goes wrong all the time, right? Like, that's just impossible to manipulate. Look at number 13. It talks about how Messiah will be humiliated and killed. You can't, you can't, you can't fabricate that. Number 14, how your murderers are going to divide your clothing as you're dying. That's not something you can make happen. Do you you see how difficult this would be? Number 17 talks about death by crucifixion. But when the prophecy of death by crucifixion was actually made, crucifixion had not been invented yet. Capital punishment, of course, has been around, unfortunately, forever. But capital punishment in Israel, it was done by stoning. People would pick up rocks and club somebody on the head with them until the person was dead. That was capital punishment. The Roman Empire didn't even exist yet. Crucifixion didn't even exist yet when the prophecy was made. And, and so you can see how when this prophecy was made and then fulfilled in Jesus, this is a big deal. You could imagine if somebody uh, prophesies that, that a certain person is going to be crucified, say in Bellevue. Well we would think that person's insane. Why? Because crucifixion isn't done in Bellevue. Do you see what I mean? It's just, it does not happen. Again, it's not something that can be fabricated. Number 19 is a prophecy about how the Messiah will not have any broken bones. But you understand that when people were crucified under the Roman rule, almost always their bones would be broken. When they were nailed up to the the cross... There was a nail put in their feet and and often what they would do is they would push up on the nail on their feet so that they could fill their lungs with air and it would allow the, the criminal on the cross to stay alive for just a little bit longer. So to expedite the process of crucifixion, the Roman guards would come and they would break the legs of of the criminals there on the cross. So even though they're already hung up, even though they're already going to die, Romans didn't want to wait around. They would break the legs so that the criminals couldn't push up on the cross and fill their lungs with air. And so they would actually, they they would die of suffocation. But they didn't do that to Jesus. Now I want you to understand, this is not something that you could fabricate. Even if Jesus asked them, pretty, pretty please, don't break my legs. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it, this is outside of a mere human's control. And yet Jesus fulfills these prophecies. He fulfills them perfectly. And the point of this exercise is that even though Jesus knew of these prophecies, even though he understood that they were referring to the Messiah, there is simply no way that he or any other mere human could have manipulated circumstances simply to appear to have fulfilled them. No, no, he did fulfill them. In fact, Jesus fulfilled all of the hundreds of prophecies referring to the Messiah, the anointed one of God. See, God's people knew their Savior, Messiah, Jesus, was coming because they carefully and prayerfully studied the Old Testament Scriptures. And I want you to think about for a second how specific some of the prophecies are. So some of the prophecies, so specific, born in the tiny hamlet of Bethlehem. Born before AD 70, the year that the temple was destroyed. Think about some of the supernatural claims that were fulfilled, born of a virgin. ...the resurrection that would happen after the crucifixion. And just remember that these prophecies were not made by just one person. But they were made over the course of multiple centuries... ...by different followers of God as God inspired them. And so there's this collective, different authors writing over the span of centuries. Blaise Pascal, he's a philosopher and a follower of Jesus, and, and when he contemplated this reality, this is what he said. If a single man had written a book for telling the time and manner of Jesus' coming, and Jesus had come in conformity with these prophecies, this would carry infinite weight. In other words, if just one man wrote the Bible, it would still be this incredible, powerful thing. But there's much more here. There is a succession of men over a period of 2,000 years coming consistently and invariably, one after the other, to foretell the same coming. There's an entire people proclaiming it, existing for 2,000 years, to testify in a body to the certainty they feel about it, from which they cannot be deflected by whatever threats and persecutions they may suffer. This is of quite different order of importance. You see, the bottom line is that Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, it's simply beyond coincidence. There's no way that it could just happen, coincidentally. If you want to do more reading on this, if if this is something that intrigues you, you'd like to dive into it, I highly recommend Lee Strobel's work, The Case for Christ. Now I've heard Lee Lee Strobel speak on this stuff several times. We were on staff together down in Southern California, and and Lee has an analogy because you can actually do the math. You can look at the statistical improbability of, of, of what the odds are that one person could fulfill all these prophecies. And again, you can jump into Case for Christ. You, you, you can pursue this uh, through Lee himself. He actually has the number. And it's so astronomical. The, the odds are so against it that literally our finite minds cannot comprehend a number this big. So Strobel comes up with an analogy. He says, if you want to know the odds of one person fulfilling this many prophecies, he says it's like this. Imagine the state of Texas. How big the state of Texas is. Imagine the entire thing every square inch of it covered a foot deep with quarters, okay? Just imagine the whole state a foot deep, you know, buried in quarters. Now imagine all of the quarters are identical except for one quarter on the tail side somebody has taken a red sharpie and drawn a little red dot with a sharpie on one quarter and then thrown it somewhere in the state of Texas. Now you get a helicopter You can fly anywhere you want over the state of Texas. You can land in one place. You can pick up any quarter you want, but you can only pick up one quarter. You pick up one quarter. Look at the back. The chances that you pick up the one quarter with the red dot on it are the same chances that one person, Jesus, could fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. That's pretty big stuff, right? By the way, that's the same statistical probability of me ever moving to the state of Texas, right? But I say all this because I want you to to kind of get a handle on. It's not like, oh, any one of 25 people could have fulfilled these prophecies. Any one of 12 religious leaders could have fulfilled these prophecies. Any rabbi in Israel could have fulfilled. No, 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 no. Only Jesus could fulfill the prophecies spoken about in the Old Testament. Written hundreds of years before his arrival, yet Jesus perfectly meets the profile. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus is the anointed one of God. Because Jesus is the Savior. And he has come to reveal God's heart and he's come to bring his grace. He's come to offer forgiveness. He's come to be raised from the dead to take care of the sin problem that affects all of us. Jesus has come to invite us all into abundant life now and eternal life forever. Only Jesus does this. And so there's some practical implications, right, personal implications for us as we contemplate all of this reality of prophecy fulfilled. And if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is simply this. The implication of all of this prophetic fulfillment is that you can trust God's Word. You can trust His Word. Fulfilled prophecy validates the trustworthiness of Scripture. Because what it is, is it's God's revelation of history in advance. And so when history happens, it's just, a, it's just uh, showing, it's, it's displaying the, the trustworthiness of, of God's word. And, and, and you know this. If you've been following Jesus for some time and you're reading God's word and you're ingesting God's word and, and you're aware of God's promises and then you see God fulfill his promises... If you're aware because you're in relationship with Jesus and, and as you lift up your petitions and your requests and then you see the answers, God comes through, right? You start to learn, oh, there's, there's a reality here. I can trust the promises in God's word. What God says, God follows through on. That, that there's a trustworthiness to the scriptures because prophecy becomes fulfilled. Every time that happens, it's a validation of Scripture. So that's the first practical implication. You can trust God's Word. By the way, I want to go back to what I said earlier. Jesus did know the Bible. Jesus knew the Scriptures. This is another reason why followers of Jesus want to know the Scriptures is because we want to follow Jesus' lead. We want to live the life that he modeled for us. We want to know the things that he knew about, the things that he taught. That's why we study the Scripture. So first practical implication, you can trust God's Word. The second is this, that only Jesus is the centerpiece. Only Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the centerpiece of the scripture, right? He he is the revelation. It's all pointing to him when he arrives on the scene. Everything that comes after points back to him, that everything points to Jesus. He's the centerpiece of scripture. He's also the centerpiece of history. He divides history in two. It's it's the before Christ. It's the afterwards, like everything uh, oriented around the arrival of Jesus Christ. He's actually the centerpiece of, of creation, of all being, holding it all together. Not hyperbole to say that Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. Now, I recognize that it's kind of a big, not kind of, it's a super big statement, and you hear that, you're like, oh, man, come, come to Overlake. They're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to make a big deal about Jesus. Listen, let me be honest with you. No matter how big of a deal we make about Jesus, Jesus is a bigger deal still. He's going to be infinitely bigger than any kind of big deal we can make about him. And if you, you want to see a passage that perfectly illustrates this, we go to Colossians Chapter 1, and this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross." See, that's a big deal. And as you look at that passage, you might want to circle some of the words that pop out. Supreme, it happens more than once. Over everything, it happens more than once. That, that, that there's no way we can make a big enough deal about the position that only Jesus fills. And, and, and I get it, it's, it's not like we're lining up a bunch of religious leaders and going, hey, we think he's the coolest, he's, he's the happiest, he's the fattest, he's the skinniest. Like, like there's, a lot of, there's a lot of religious leaders out there, but you see, we can respect all of the religious leaders sort of on an even plane, and then Jesus is this other plane, because he, he's different there's something absolutely more about him. And and this prophecy that points to him and the fulfillment of Jesus to all the prophecy, it it, it elevates him to this other realm. Does this make sense? He's the centerpiece. It's the personal implication. And not only were there these scripture, these these men, hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, that were speaking about him. But did you know that Jesus hundreds of years before you ever showed up on the scene, that there are passages where Jesus is speaking about you, where Jesus is praying for you. And specifically, I'll I'll read you a couple of verses. In a a prayer he's praying for all of his disciples, he says this, John 17, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He, He keeps going. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives, he's talking about himself. Jesus gives eternal life to each one you've given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Now if you're here, if you're joining us online, you need to realize that Jesus, the one of whom the prophets speak, that Jesus, the one who has received all authority in heaven and earth, the one who's supreme over everything, that, that this same Jesus, he's the one praying for you. And, and what is it that he's praying for you? Well, he's praying that you would know him. He's praying that, that you would know him, and because you know him, that you would receive eternal life. Abundant life now, life eternal with him forever and ever. You see, Jesus, before you ever called out to him, Jesus knew you. Before you ever thought to ask him for forgiveness, Jesus, he he offered forgiveness. You see, he has loved you since the very beginning. He has known you, why? Because only Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. Jesus is the centerpiece, you can trust God's word. And it brings us to the very last truth, the personal implication. It's this, that you can trust God's heart for you. You can trust that his heart for you is good. You can trust that his heart for you is love. I can trust that as well. That, that we see that what God wants to communicate is he wants to give us a, a beautifully clear picture of his own heart. And so he sent Jesus. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he loves like nobody else has ever loved He lives like nobody else has ever lived. He fully pays the price for all sin on the cross. The crucifixion that he goes through, that he endures, is beyond horrific. And then he raises again from the grave. We're going to celebrate that in two weeks on Easter Sunday. Nobody else has done this. And and he does all of this. Why? Because his heart for you is good. His heart for you is love. I kind of want to wrap this all up with a personal story uh, It just happened this week. My, my son, Doozy, is in fifth grade. And every time around, anyway, the North Shore School District, fifth grade means that sometime in the spring uh, they go to fifth grade camp, all the students. And my wife uh, went with my oldest daughter to 5th grade camp when she was in 5th grade. And then a few years ago when my son Caleb was in 5th grade, I went with him to 5th grade camp. And now Doozy's in 5th grade. So back in September, he's like, Dad, this is 5th grade. I get to go to 5th grade camp. Will you go with me? And I said, oh, yeah, bud, I will. Because it was September and beautiful and glorious and warm. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. And, and then camp gets a little closer. Uh, it was this week. And... I just want to say there are four seasons of the year, and, and we are in what's known as winter. And it's quite wet. Now, honestly, it's re- really wet outside. In fact, the sunshine that I was standing in when I said yes to fifth grade camp, I haven't seen it since September. And the cabins that we stay in, they're they're, they're quite cold. And and the things that you have to do at fifth grade camp, like starting a fire from scratch or making a shelter out of branches, those things are delightful in August, but they're miserable when you can't feel your fingers. And so we're coming up on fifth grade camp this week, and and my son, Doozy, he's so excited about it. And I start thinking, we are in March. I'm like, what are we doing? Not only that, but it's Daylight Savings Week, so we just lose an hour forever, you know, and and it's a short week, and and then not only that, but this happens to be a week that Overlake. We hosted a conference for thousands of people, a ministry conference. It was wonderful, uh, but not a week that you want to be gone for. And then the same week, you know, I, I happen to have a wedding rehearsal and a wedding, uh, and then also a funeral that's happening this afternoon. Not complaining about these things, but it just means fifth grade camp. Not a good week for fifth grade camp. And then there's this other thing happening called Easter, which uh, I, I know it's not a, maybe a big deal to you, but for a pastor, it's like the Super Bowl of the year. Like that, that's the big thing. So there's all the stress and planning behind the scenes. And, and if I could have, I would have changed the time of, of fifth grade camp to sometime in June because nobody comes to church in June. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. You come. Or, or at least most of you. Uh, but uh, I would have changed it to sometime in June, or I would have changed the location of fifth grade camp from, you know, Lake Stevens to Lake Havasu. Uh, but um, All all kinds of things, but but I couldn't do any of that, and so all that was left was for me to pack my wool socks and take a deep breath and and go to fifth grade camp. And I'm so glad that I did for a thousand reasons. It turned out to be just a really incredible week, and and I love the the, the boys that were placed in my cabin. I love the other adult leaders I got a chance to meet. I mean, it was really, in so many ways, it was just a victory. But the number one reason why I'm glad I went to fifth grade camp is because I told my son Doozy in September that I was going to fifth grade camp. And I wanna be the dad who comes through on his promise. And I want my son to know that he can trust his dad to come through on his promise, to show up when I said I was gonna show up. Now, I'm a fallible dad and so I struggle with this and obviously there are are pressures and pull and schedule, there's all that stuff for real, it's true in your life. It's true in mine. But I, I just want you to know, as much as I possibly can, I want to show up because I want my son's experience of his father to be his father is trustworthy. His father's heart is good. His father will be there when he says he's going to be there. Because that's true of his heavenly father. Because even though I'm a fallible dad, God is infallible. That even though I have limitations, Jesus has none. Only Jesus is completely trustworthy. Only Jesus' heart for you is completely good and completely love, And so you can trust him. Hundreds of years before the the arrival of God in the flesh on the scene, he announced, this is how I'm gonna come. This is where I'm gonna come. This is what it's going to look like. Here's the road of salvation. Here's how the penalty for sin will be paid. Here's how I'm going to show that I'm God in the flesh through the resurrection. All along the way, these markers, these these signs pointing to Messiah, pointing to the anointed one, pointing to only Jesus. So you can trust him. You can trust that his heart for you is good. We've already seen some stories about life transformation today, and uh, and, and they're so incredible. I I love our baptism uh, weekends, but there there was one story this morning at our nine twenty service that you didn't get a chance to hear, and so I, I I wanted to give you a chance to see this. So let's go ahead and roll this and, and watch this testimony. Ellen Itza, come on up here. Give it a try. Give it a try. Okay. I grew up in a Christian home and was baptized. In- That was a good try. I grew up in a Christian home and was baptized as a preteen. After experiencing sexual abuse at the age of 15, my life took a very different direction. I didn't tell anyone what had happened. I felt ashamed and very alone. I pushed everyone I loved away and found myself in one bad relationship after another. Four years later, I finally shared what happened with my mom and she convinced me to see a Christian counselor. Through Psalm 23, Jesus showed me that he was there but I immediately pushed him away and quit seeing the counselor. That passage got me through some tough times over the next 10 years, but it wasn't until I started attending Overlake that I learned that even though I turned my back on him, he never left me. I was worth something and Jesus loved me no matter what. I finally began to heal, but it took another 10 years to learn to truly trust again. Last year, after being diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, I had two options, run from him or trust him. I chose to trust him fully, and he reminded me again of Psalm 23 that I have nothing to fear because he would always be with me. I also learned to trust those close to me, to trust that their love and support was genuine. Today and forever, I fully trust in him. You can trust that his heart for you is good. I want you to bow your heads. As we go into prayer, I just want to remind you that wherever you are, whatever your life circumstances are, you can trust him. Whatever pain you're currently going through, you can trust him. Whatever life transitions you might be looking at, you can trust him. Because his word, is trustworthy. Because Jesus is the centerpiece, and because his heart for you is good. And Jesus, we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you that only you are the one who has fulfilled all of these prophecies. Only you are the one who has come with the specific purpose of loving us. Even in our unlovable state, even as we run from you, you love us. You're patient with us. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We're going to say thank you for that. Thank you for being so steadfast, so trustworthy. Jesus, we choose now to place our trust in you. We ask that you would build us up in trust, that that we would actually, our, our trust level would be elevated because we see how often your scripture in the Old Testament points directly to you, the Messiah, We we ask that you would elevate the, the, the amount of trust we have in you as you bring to mind how often you have been trustworthy, how often you have fulfilled your promise for us, how often you have carried us through difficulty. Lord Jesus, we love you. We place our trust in you afresh and anew today, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.